Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Tomorrow marks 20 years since the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Attacks on the World Trade Center, Twin Towers, the Pentagon, and United Airlines Flight 93, which crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. On today's program, how the United States policy and American opinion on terrorism has changed since 9-11. Also, why it took four White House administrations to officially end the war in Afghanistan. I'll speak with Tony Lemu, professor of communication at Georgia State University and founding co-director of the Atlanta Global Studies Center. Plus, we'll revisit a conversation with veteran news anchor and correspondent Scott Pelley as he told me about the morning of September 11th. The next thing I knew, I was on my knees, and I was calling out to God out loud, and I said, God, take all those people with no pain. And in just a moment, I'll speak with Erica Dodd. She's the race director for tomorrow's 9-11 Heroes Run. It's part of a nationwide race presented by the Travis Mannion Foundation. All those conversations coming up. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is wasting no time pushing back on new COVID-19 vaccine requirements announced by President Joe Biden just yesterday. One of those new requirements, businesses with more than 100 employees have to mandate vaccines or staff must submit to regular testing. As Biden was speaking yesterday, Kemp tweeted that he would pursue every legal option to block what he called a blatant overreach by the administration. Now, today, during the White House COVID-19 response team briefing, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky revealed the nation is recording more than a thousand deaths a day. She went on to add that all the more reason to get more folks in the country vaccinated and also revealed findings from a new study. In this study, over 600,000 COVID-19 cases from April through mid-July were evaluated and linked to vaccination status. Looking at cases over the past two months when the Delta variant was the predominant variant circulating in this country, those who were unvaccinated were about four and a half times more likely to get COVID-19, over 10 times more likely to be hospitalized, and 11 times more likely to die from the disease. And Georgia has one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country. State data reveals 45 percent of residents are fully vaccinated. In other news, the first portion of the Atlanta Beltline's Southside Trail is now open. So West Side Trail users can continue for about another mile from University Avenue to Pittsburgh Yards. Those construction gates were lifted yesterday. Now the trail continues, albeit unpaved, to Glenwood Avenue and onto the East Side Trail up to Piedmont Park. And here's some good news. According to Beltline officials, they say construction came in under budget, allowing more funds for installed lights and cameras at the connector and Manfred Road connections. Both are key access points to the trail. 
And finally, are you ready for some football? The NFL season kicked off last night. Thank you, Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott. He gave me 45 points in my fantasy football game. Don't worry, I do have Atlanta Falcons tied in Cal Pitts on my team, so don't y'all email me. The Falcons begin the season with new head coach Arthur Smith. Kickoff is at 1 p.m., of course, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and they play the Philadelphia Eagles. So, good luck, Falcons. Now, coming up next, 20 years since the September 11th attacks. This is Closer Look. As we know, the day before the nation honors the thousands who lost their lives on September 11th, 2001, the first responders as well, and also the military service members in the war that ensued because of the attacks. Now, there will be many honors, tributes, and even events taking place tomorrow, and that includes right here in Atlanta. It's part of the Travis Mannion Foundation, and it's the 9-11 Heroes Run. Joining me now is Erica Dodge, race director for the event here in Atlanta. Erica, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. In just a moment, we'll learn more about First Lieutenant Travis Mannion, United States Marine Corps. But first, you know, visitors to the foundation's website will see these words, run to remember so future generations don't forget. I imagine this is at the core of the organization's overall mission. It absolutely is, yes. Uh, the the name of the foundation came from, obviously, uh, Travis Mannion himself uh, and the family that, uh, after he was killed uh, in Fallujah, Iraq, um, the foundation, his family wanted to start the foundation and, of course, remember those that we've lost since 9-11. Well, give our listeners a little bit more insight about who was First Lieutenant Travis Mannion. Absolutely. He was a, um, he first went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, Once he graduated, he became uh, an officer in the Marine Corps. And he, um, it was on his second tour of duty uh, that he um, lost his life. But he, prior to going on that second deployment, uh, he was talking to his brother-in-law at no less an an Eagles, a Philadelphia Eagles game. He's a, a Philadelphia Eagles fan Um, and they were at the game and his brother-in-law said what if you know what if I tripped you and you couldn't go on the second deployment and Travis very stoically um, uh, said uh, I I have the experience I I want to go I want to serve with my brothers and sisters and if not me then who and that's become the mantra of the foundation. Uh, and so, of course, he, he did go on that second deployment. And it was uh, during that, it was April of 2007, that he was in Fallujah and lost his life um, from a sniper. And how old was he again? Uh, he was in his early 20s, uh, I believe 24, 25. Your foundation's yeah. mission says you want to empower veterans and families of fallen heroes to develop character in future generations. Take that further. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, um, I mean, it's a, a, a heartfelt part of the organization. That's, that's um, the whole focus of, of what we do. And uh, so the, how it works is we are a nationwide organization. Uh, we train veterans, families of the fallen, as well as first responders to be mentors to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And what that looks like is uh, those mentors get trained. Uh, there's um, a lot of understanding of what character and leadership looks like uh, for themselves, what, uh, you know, what their strengths are, 
um, by taking the values and action survey and then they can talk to any any type of youth audience so that could be Girl Scouts it could be Boy Scouts uh, not just uh, youth in schools and obviously that looked a little different mm-hmm. uh, over the past year and a half um, and I think that virtual component kind of added to being able to serve even more people and uh, impact not only veterans but the youth uh, that also were able to participate. Are you all strategic in trying to connect that message when you talk about the youth or, your, or, the, young, or the younger generation? Because it's been 20 years now for some, um, either they weren't born or, or know very little, even about 9-11, but just in general trying to connect the mission and the message there with, with the younger generation. Absolutely. Uh, That um, is a a key part of that as well. Um, Not only do the veterans and the families of the fallen get to speak about how they lost their loved one or what their experiences were um, being in the military, but also we have what is called, um, we do service projects. And uh, with those service projects, we are able to include the youth. And that's that's the whole point of it is to make sure that that younger generation understands service and what it means to serve in your community and be a leader in your community. And by having that, um, those service projects, we are able to do them in the name of a fallen hero. So um, quite often we try and do projects that are local to a community and then pick a um, the fallen service member um, that was from that local community. So it kind of brings it all back uh, as well. And Erica, how are you all able to gauge, um, maybe the effectiveness is not the best word, but how are you all able to gauge if this is working? Um, I imagine you get feedback from the young ones, I call them the young ones, I'm, I'm old, the younger generation or maybe the, the community or the, the engagement of the activity. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I, I think um, that kind of tells you if what you're doing works and if it has an impact. And that's what we're all about. Uh, we want to make sure that it is a of benefit to everyone that's participating. Um, the foundation has done a lot of uh, data analysis um, along with, you know, obviously we, we want to hear it from those that participate and being able to do surveys as well as um they have partnered with uh, IVMF, so Institute of Veteran Military Families, mm-hmm. and they do a lot of uh, data analysis and um, have been able to um, kind of loop that together and in those surveys to understand better what is working, what doesn't work, uh, and maybe some room for improvement. But something that came out of those IVMF studies uh, and is is key to the Character Does Matter program in particular, mm-hmm. um, which is focused on the youth, um, that uh, from, from that data that they received, more than 55% of veterans feel disconnected from that civilian life that they've now entered. And one in three uh, youth do not have a role model or a mentor. And mm-hmm. so that's where character does matter. And the programs that we do at Travis Manion Foundation are really key to um, making sure that, that those numbers are, um, that they don't continue mm-hmm. to, to get worse, but we want to include veterans and of course the youth uh, to uh, to be f- to feel better and more connected to their communities. So let's give out details for tomorrow's races. There's a lot of races taking place around the country, but here in Atlanta, where can it, well, is it too late for folks to still register or can they at least just it run the, the, oh, they can still, 
All right. You know, we have some runners here at WABE. I'm going to put them on the spot. Uh, Martha Dalton, Molly Samuel, Dennis O'Hare. I think Emil Moffitt runs. Me, I, well, I, I'll I, look I, for them tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to make sure they're out there. <laughs> I, I'll be on the sideline with some donuts, cheering people on. Uh, what, tell us about the details for tomorrow's race. We can do that as well. Yeah, we're happy to have supporters and cheerleaders for us. So, um, yes, you can sign up tomorrow. Uh, currently, as of today, uh, registration is closed online, but we will have uh, race day registration. And uh, we would love to see you. The The race itself starts at 9 a.m., uh, but we will be doing uh, a ceremony prior. That will start at 8.30. We have a um, very special guest speaker. Chuck Siegel will be joining us, uh, Marine Corps veteran, mm-hmm. and um, he will be speaking. And we have a junior ROTC group that will be doing um, an honor guard. And we have a young lady, uh, a freshman in high school, who will be singing the national anthem. So Now we where certainly... do folks go? We haven't told them where to go. <laughs> So um, visit travismanion.org for all of the details. You can look up the Atlanta race. We have a a big, beautiful map at the Mm -hmm. bottom of that homepage. You can select the Atlanta location and we will be starting the race. Everything will be going on at Stats Brew Pub in downtown Atlanta, Mm -hmm. um, not far from the aquarium. So it'll be a nice downtown run. Uh, and obviously it'll be a beautiful day. We can remember and honor. Uh, it'll be a very special day for all of us. And finally, Eric, Eric, as we wrap up, what are your personal thoughts as now the nation marks 20 years of the September 11th attacks? It, it is certainly a, um, a, you know, a challenging time, I think. Uh, not only is it the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we're ending the longest war in America's history. We have a lot of service members that will be returning. Um, and I think this is a, a great time for those veterans returning uh, and their families. We want inspired civilians to join Travis Manion Foundation and the work that we do because like myself, I am an inspired civilian. I am not a veteran, uh, but my husband is a veteran and that's, that's um, you know, why it, it kind of hits home a little bit more for me. Uh, and being able to serve this community because, uh, you know, it's important to to be able to share that with others and make them feel welcomed and uh, welcome them home. And we should note you can run or walk, correct? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. All right. Erica Dodge, race director here in Atlanta for the 9-11 Heroes Run, part of a nationwide uh, race is presented by the Travis Mannion Foundation. Erica, thank you so much for what you all do. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from The Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Good evening. 
Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. That is how President George W. Bush began addressing the nation from the Oval Office the night of September 11th, 2001. Close Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. We continue our special coverage 20 years since the attacks on the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and United Airlines Flight 93, which crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It's estimated 3,000 lives were lost. Then, less than a month later, on October 7th, President Bush once again addressed the nation. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. What wasn't known, because it was called Operation Enduring Freedom, would not officially end until December 28, 2014. That, of course, during President Barack Obama's second term. And then just last week, the official end of the war in Afghanistan. Twenty years later, as the U.S. continues to coordinate getting all Americans and those Afghan nationals safely out of the country, here's some questions. How has the United States policy on terrorism changed these last two decades since 9-11? And obviously, also... Why it took through four White House administrations. Let's welcome in Tony Lemieux, professor of communication at Georgia State University and founding co-director of the Atlanta Global Studies Center. Professor, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me today, Rose. I appreciate it. Let's begin here because there's a recent Pew Research poll which revealed most Americans, talking about 69 percent, say the U.S. failed in achieving its goals in Afghanistan. What do you make of that? Well, I think, you know, without having a clear sense of how people understood those goals, it's a tough uh, question to interpret. Like, what what are the goals? I think, you know, certainly we could talk about different phases, you know, in the immediate sort of aftermath of, of September 11, 2001 um, versus longer term goals versus a longer term stability. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things that became part of the 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 operation and the mandate. So I would First, want to say what you know? What do we mean by those goals before we can really unpack that? That's interesting because going back and listening to President George Bush back then, through your lens, was it about dismantling or disabling the Taliban and uh, affiliate terrorist groups like Al Qaeda? Was that re- realistic to begin with? You think? Well, in terms of disrupting what Al Qaeda had been able to do, basically unchecked up until September 11th, and really in those preparatory years, I mean, certainly that is that, that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 you know denied the ability to have the planning, the training, the operational space and capacity. So in that regard, having that ability to identify, locate, uh, you know, disrupt. Uh, I, I think certainly was was a, a critical piece, you know, but to really understand the dynamics, you've got to take a longer view, you know, going all the way back in Afghanistan, if you want to make, you know, the conversation really focus in on Afghanistan, mm-hmm. but, but certainly in that immediate time frame, 
uh, I think that that having the presence to go in disrupt was 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 a critical component. And we should note that this research also revealed that, listen, immediately after the attacks, it was a what they call a sizable majority. Seventy six percent was confident in the success of the mission, with thirty nine percent saying they were very confident. But then public support changed, obviously, as throughout President Obama's administration. And then it increased after Osama bin Laden was killed in 2011. That's probably not lost. That's no surprise to you. Well, and, and I think it's, again, it's it's what people are following and what people see get coverage and and things along the way, uh, you know, are going to get different degrees of coverage. Certainly the, the location of bin Laden was a huge and newsworthy event mm-hmm. and recognized as such. But then things along that the sort of, the, the you know, the, the way as well. You know, last year I spoke with former director of the CIA, John Brennan, and we spent time talking about the 9-11 attacks, and he talked about that they understood there was something that was brewing, but they just didn't know when and where. Take a listen. We really were at war with Al-Qaeda as soon as those planes hit the World Trade Center and the plane went down in Shanksville and Pentagon was hit. Mm -hmm. And we knew at CIA that Al-Qaeda was planning some, you know, large-scale attack, but uh, unfortunately we weren't able to stop it in advance. But we worked very hard to stop the follow-on attacks, and Al-Qaeda did have follow-on attack plans very much uh, um, pending. Uh, they had a plan to carry out a series of uh, airplane attacks uh, similarly to what happened in 9-11 against the west coast of the United States. They were going to um, have them fly out of Southeast Asia. And because of some very, very good work by CIA, as well as our U.S. counterparts and foreign liaison partners, we were able to uncover those plans and stop them before they took place. But it was an all-hands-on-deck approach. Now, Professor, you hear uh, former CIA Director John Brennan talking about, listen, you know, it, it took all hands on de- deck. He also talks about the fact that this was not something that most of us as American citizens didn't know. But when you hear, he said, you know what, we knew at the CIA that Al-Qaeda was planning this large-scale attack but we weren't able to stop it in advance. And maybe to someone listening now, they say, but you know, what? this is this is your guys' role as a CIA. And if you're also, you have your allies, why didn't, why weren't you able to maybe stop it? Can you understand someone thinking that way? Well, in a sense, but it also is, is missing a lot of the history and the context in the background. I mean, you know, look, Al Qaeda became increasingly known. Bin Laden had, you know, the declaration of war goes back, you know, to 1996, 1998, you had the simultaneous attacks in Kenya and Tanzania. In mm-hmm. 2000, you had the uh, attack on the USS Cole. Now, one of the things that, that our intelligence community over this period really understood was that Al-Qaeda was a learning and growing organization that was interested in big, spectacular kinds of coordinated events. And in fact, you know, intelligence is only valuable to the extent it's acted on and really listened to by policymakers. So that's a really important point here. The intelligence was there. It might, it's never perfect, right? It's never the sort of scenario where you have all the pieces except for the one and you know, it, 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 it's that you get the sort of imperfect information and you're making judgment calls and the intelligence was there. There was a briefing. And again, if for listeners who haven't looked at the 9-11 report, it is a critical document in American history in this context, because, this, you know, it starts off, you know, with 
talking about the sort of planning, the preparation, the system was flashing red, Al-Qaeda determined to strike in the U.S. This is a briefing that was given, you know, to the highest levels, and it, and it didn't really get the level of action. So you can unpack it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that, you know, that, that it is it is fair to lay the responsibility solely on any one institution, organization, mm-hmm. individual, or otherwise, because it's really a whole of government response with intelligence being the part that tries to see into very difficult, very murky spaces where it's hard to see and where you're working with imperfect, incomplete information. Now, we got a lot better at it mm-hmm. afterwards, of course, but it, you know, sort of in the lead up, there was a political element, there was an intelligence element, there was a failure to connect the dots and coordinate among agencies because that was the other thing. And, and part of the reason why DHS came to be mm-hmm. and why some of the joint you know, task force and fusion centers came to be, because one hand didn't really know what the other was doing. So a lot of changes there. And we should note DHS, of course, is Department of Homeland Security here. Uh, let's go back, because when you look at that from when Operation Enduring Freedom started in 2001 and then officially ended in President Obama's in terms of the combat uh, in 2014, you've got 13 years already. Yeah. If someone says, well, were we winning in that 13-year period? Now, if, you, if, if someone wants to use a metric as Osama bin Laden's death as, as the key, then I guess you could say, well, yeah, we did what we were supposed to do. But someone else could say, but look how many lives are lost to get to one man. Or you, you, you can maybe bring more insight into that, Professor. Yeah, again, this goes back to that original point. It, you know, it, it depends on what the metric was. Part of it was to provide a degree of security and stability on which nation building can happen. You know, one of the problems that led to the, the sort of space for Al-Qaeda to, to form in Afghanistan after they, you know, uh, left Sudan, for instance, mm-hmm. one of the things that, that, that you had, uh, I think, to to really take account of is the mission sort of had to change. We left and really left Afghanistan in the mid nineties, early and mid nineties. And really by about 1995, 96, where the Taliban could come in. Mm -hmm. Um, We left it as, you know, we, we went, you know, the Soviets were out. uh, the, 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 the space was open. There was a lot of room. And one of the, the problems that we had was, OK, so we've we've routed out Al Qaeda for you know significant part. We've made it very hard for them to operate in this particular space and region. It didn't mean that like the Haqqani network and others that were still part of this, that the Taliban. I mean, I've been studying the Taliban's communication and propaganda over, you know, for well, for a long time. We've looked mm-hmm. we've got papers on this. I mean, they have been telling us who they are and what they're about for years there's a sort of an an alliance with and support for uh, uh, al-qaeda at least giving them space and capacity and and unfortunately in you know and i think this is my judgment and you know shared by many uh, Mm -hmm. colleagues and scholars but we are significantly back to where frankly we were um around that time where it was a, a a space where we didn't have the intelligence the insight the security environment and that's a really, uh, you know, that's a substantial problem. But were you surprised then how quickly the Taliban was able to come in and secure Afghanistan when not even all the Americans were out of the country? I mean, well, then one could say, well, look, you know, how were they able to do that? And, well, 
again, a work in progress. And this is where, you know, yes, the, the optics and the execution of this sort of withdrawal were unquestionably terrible, mm -hmm. inexcusably terrible. Um, the seeds for this, though, go back through multiple administrations. I mean, one of the things that happened, and people may not be as, as aware of, but, you know, with the Trump administration sort of short circuit dealing directly with the Taliban and leaving the Afghan government out like that's a big deal that sort of undercuts and undermines so you know there were a lot of factors involved in this I think the biggest sort of failing that we see right now is just in the sort of nature and the execution of the withdrawal and what it's left in its wake and frankly that's going to be years to you know we're going to see that sort of evolve over the years but look at the look at the new afghan government under the taliban look at who's part of that look at the i mean people who we literally have on terrorist watch lists mm -hmm. with you know five million dollar bounties on their head are now like you know Haqqani is the secretary of the interior in afghanistan like this so when you look at things like that it is I think a really, really very poor outcome, tragic outcome all around, most certainly for the people in Afghanistan who now had 20 years of trying to build, create institutions, education, that's gone, all well, of it. Let me ask you this then, are you optimistic? Do you believe then that the U.S. may not have to go back? I mean, you just, you just get, you're right about when you say, look, who's in, who's part of running the operation now, folks who have been very vocal about their disdain for you, for the U.S., and and plotted or allegedly plotted in some attacks. So, is it possible that the U.S. will have to go back to this region? Well, let me out answer the first question. Am I optimistic? Um, in my professional judgment, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, and I think it's unfortunate because there were over the years you know, whiffs at optimism. And I, you know, a number, like about two, three years ago, I was starting to have conversations about potentially having collaborations between Georgia State University and my students and the American University in Kabul. I mean, you know, none, all of it is gone. And, and you know, so, and I can't put a, a strong enough point on that, like mm -hmm. that. So, so do I think like, are we going to see things immediately? You know, we're going to probably see some infighting between Al Qaeda and ISIS and Khorasan, ISK, or you've heard it referred to as ISIS-K. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, there's going to probably be a, a more immediate impact in South Asia. And, and you know, and, and maybe that's containable, but, uh, you know, it's still tragic and it does create a possibility and an opening that when there was at least some degree of stabilizing presence, security and intelligence gathering capacity, we had a better shot at being more proactive and preventive than we're going to be in the foreseeable future. And I don't think, I mean, you know, some of that people may, you know, have varying opinions on exactly mm -hmm. the nature and how, but the fundamentals there, I, I think, you know, are, are certainly, uh, you know, supported uh, just with the sort of understanding the context, the background and what enabled some of the things to happen in the first place there. We're, mm -hmm. we're back to where we were basically. You have, I take it you have read that 9-11 report? Yeah, and I would also, for those who don't want to slog through the huge document, it's it, really well-written, informative, but there's also an incredibly well-done graphic novel adaptation of it for people who aren't aware of this. It's, it's super well-done um, and really kind of distills the essence of it. But, 
Yeah, and, and, and a lot of the research that's come since then. I mean, you know, I was in graduate school uh, during the 9-11 attacks, and, and it really, you know, as a social psychologist, thinking about intergroup relations and violence, I mean, it shaped my career trajectory. I had, you know, friends from uh, college, one of my friends from college was in the building. Uh, professor, are you with us? Um, you know, to that Greek Orthodox Church, St. John's, we used to go for Greek Easter right in the footprint of the Twin Towers. I mean, I, I know that area and I know the people. And so it had a big impact. Uh, you cut out for a second. I just want to make sure we heard you. You lost a friend who was in one of the towers, you said? Yeah, my, my friend who was a, a college uh, a classmate at Boston College. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's. Hmm. I think we're having some difficulty here. My dad was working around the corner and I couldn't, you know, I didn't know where he was or, you know, or if he was okay. And, you know, the people who were walking across the Brooklyn Bridge covered in soot and debris, like mm -hmm. he was among them. Like, this, you know, this, we had friends who lived in Tribeca. One of my, uh, you know, wife's best friends and a good friend of ours is, you know, we, we spent time around the corner in the trucks. I'll never forget the trucks removing the debris. And it was just a constant parade going onto the barges. So, you know, both personally and professionally, this is profoundly impactful. Hmm. Finally, Professor, what are your thoughts as the nation marks 20 years since September 11th? We've, we've come a long way. Um, we have a long way to go. The threat of global terrorism, you know, is unfortunately still quite present. The threat of domestic terrorism we've seen ratchet up. I think it's it's important that we're recognizing that as well. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, um, I think it, <laughs> this sounds like maybe Pollyannish, but, you know, just we got to be good to each other. And we've got to, you know, work hard to, to, to create a world that uh, is is welcoming and inclusive and, and open and secure. Um, and if we can do that through education, through development, through, you know, providing security and health and all the other things that really sort of create the spaces where, um, you know, we can prevent some of the bad things from taking root uh, in the world, then, then let's try to do better at that. Not Pollyannish at all, Professor. Dr. Tony Lemieux, Professor of Communication at Georgia State University and founding co-director of the Atlanta Global Studies Center. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it, Rose. Sound off, loud and vigorous. Adrian! Pizza. All day, the help kept coming. Troops from the Army Reserve and the National Guard came to the battle zone to help secure the entire lower end of Manhattan Island, which is now closed. Closed for both the search for bodies and the search for clues. In addition here, there's a crime scene investigation. We've seen a number of FBI agents with trash that is award-winning journalist Scott Pelley reporting for what was from what was Ground Zero for CBS News. That was actually on September 12th, 2001. you hear more of my conversation with Pelley in just a moment. Uh, some programming, though, for you tonight on ATL PBA, our PBS station, a Frontline special, America After 9-11. When 9-11 happened, we were embarking upon a new era in American history. It ushered in an age of fear. It was about us versus them. Mistrust, 
two decades of feeling like the government doesn't listen to you. And division. The biggest national security threat facing the United States is internal. That is tonight on ATL PBA at 10 p.m., a frontline special, America After 9-11. You know, for those of us journalists who are working, yeah, and like probably everybody else, it's like it was yesterday. And when you listen to a veteran news correspondent like Scott Pelley talk about the morning of September 11th and the day after and what it was like to cover this in New York, you really understand the impact, obviously, for so many folks who were in the midst of this. Now, this is from our 2019 conversation when Scott Pelley was in town for to talk about his memoir, Truth Worth Telling, a reporter's search for meaning in the stories of our times. Let's begin with September 11th through September 12th. Scott, did you get any rest the first 24 hours from when you started your morning out at a job, with just your morning jog? Take our listeners through the 24 hours from when you we're jogging that morning in New York. It was the most beautiful day I'd ever seen. It was it was cool and clear and beautiful. I went for a jog in Central Park in Manhattan. And by the time I saw a television that morning, one of the World Trade Center towers was uh, burning furiously. And I thought, wow, whatever that is, it's going to be a huge story. So I called a bunch of my people who work with me at 60 Minutes, told them to get downtown, and, and I, I took off for downtown as well. Um, while I was en route downtown, the second airplane hit. By the time I got to the area that would become known as Ground Zero, uh, the buildings were starting to fall, and so I was standing there watching when uh, when the towers came down. You know, Scott, as journalists, we are not supposed to be emotional. We are supposed to harness all of that. But you knew, everyone knew, there is an instant loss of lives there. You didn't know what was happening. Your life was in danger. Rose, I, I was watching uh, World Trade Center Tower Number 1, uh, the one with the big television antenna and mast on the top of it. And as I was standing there, I, I thought I saw the mast waving back and forth like a, like a metronome. And I thought, well, that can't be. Uh, I thought maybe it was just the heat torturing the light and, and creating an optical illusion. But right after that, the building started to collapse. And, you know, you, you've heard people talk about seeing catastrophes or, or dramatic moments in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I don't know what that is, but it's true. When I was standing there, it looked to me like one floor fell and stopped, and then the next one, and then the next one. And then I thought, well, it'll stop. Mm-hmm. It won't fall all the way to the ground. It'll, it'll stop, because I, I knew there were thousands of people in those buildings. But, of course, what everyone saw on television was this building just mm-hmm. collapsing. I don't remember doing this, but the next thing I knew, I was on my knees. And I was calling out to God out loud. And I said, God, take all those people with no pain. I don't remember getting up. But the next thing I do recall is running as fast as I could with a lot of other people in the opposite direction with the sound of steel crashing onto the street behind me. And after I ran several blocks, I have no idea how far, it occurred to me that the collapse had ended. Mm -hmm. So I turned around and walked back into ground zero to do my job. 
and this gets us all the way back around to your question. CBS News was on the air for 96 hours Mm -hmm. straight. No commercials, no no breaks. breaks all day, all night. And I think it was our finest hour. CBS News is a storied organization, but independent, reliable information is the lifeblood of a democracy, and we never needed it more. In fact, you write, and I'm going to quote you here, hundreds of men and women work to exhaustion to separate fact from rumor and present solid information and analysis when America needed it most. You go on to say, all that Murrow started, all that we have become prepared us for this day. In the storied history of CBS News, this was our finest hour. Absolutely. I, um, the whole, no, no one got called at home and asked to come in, right? Everybody, just, just like the firemen and the policemen and many people in New York City, they just poured into the, to the offices, to our broadcast center, to the scene of where, where things were happening. And I was so proud of, of everyone at CBS News in that time. That was Scott Pelley from 2019 talking about his 9-11 reporting. You can revisit that full interview online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. I'm Daniel Rizel, contributing producer for Closer Look. As we continue to reflect on the 20 years since the 9-11 attacks, we're going to switch things up just a little. I'm joined now with our host, Rose Scott. Rose, welcome to Closer Look. Thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. I've I've heard of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I did want to start with a little background leading up to September 11. Mm -hmm. You were living here in Atlanta, is that right? Mm -hmm. I was living here in Atlanta. I was living off Buford Highway, and I want everyone to know, because since we always talk about housing, my rent was $545 a month. <laughs> that tells you. <laughs> different yeah, times. Different times, yeah. Um, and so how long were you working in, in news and in media at this point? I was still a newbie. I was over at WCLK, um, licensed to Clark Atlanta, which is an NPR station. And I was a producer for a national show called PowerPoint, mm. which aired on Sundays. It was a national show, and, and our host also, one of my mentors was uh, Carmen Burns. Many people will know her name. So I was, I was maybe less than three years. I started at WCLK in 1999. So yeah, I was still, still learning. Hmm. So uh, tell me about where you were on the morning of the attacks and, and maybe how you found out. I was packing because we were actually scheduled to attend a, an NPR, some type of public radio conference in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So I was packing. I didn't turn the television on. I think I had, might have had my stereo on. And I was packing. And I went down to the uh, complex manager's office just to let her know, hey, I'm going out of town. And could you please watch my cats? <laughs> and when I walked in the door, she said, are you watching this? And I, she pointed to the television. And, and I looked. And that's when the second plane hit. And I thought, what, what's going on? And then for the next two hours, I was in her office. Mm. We just were, we were glued to the television. And um, when I finally did go back to my place to make phone calls, I, I called my executive producer at the time, Reggie, and I said, I doubt we're going to be able to be flying anywhere tomorrow. And he, he was like, no, nah, I'm going to go to the airport um, and, and maybe I can catch a flight. And I remember my dad called me and he said, you know, as, as fathers do to their little girls, he said, aren't you supposed to fly out tomorrow? I said, yes. He said, well, you're not going anywhere. Hmm. I said, well, maybe he said, no, you're not going anywhere. And it just, it was for me, you know, as a young journalist, this was the, the biggest thing that I was going to be a part of in terms of, because now we had to shift 
and change focus for that the following sh- Sunday show, which came on at 9 p.m. as a national show. We're on about 35 markets. So for me, I was like, this is big. And I had no idea where to start in terms of booking guests. <laughs> Did you happen to have any family or friends who lived in the area of either New York or in, in D.C.? I had a friend, Leslie, who was working for the National Urban League um, up in, in New York. And she was she was coming out of a coffee shop or something, she said. And she just happened to look up, you know, and she saw the plane hit and she said everyone just started running it was just this cloud of dust she said and there were screams and she said I I, I where she lived apparently was some flights up and she said I didn't know if I should just go to my apartment because she didn't know what was happening so she said I just went to the nearest subway mm. and and you know then later we found out that uh, obviously um, it, it just was it, it was when you're watching it on television and like everybody else in the nation and around the world, you're trying to figure out what's happening. But then there's another part of you as a journalist because then I got my executive producer in my ear and I got my host saying, okay, who are we going to get? So I didn't have time to absorb it all as just an, an American, as, as, as a citizen, as a resident, to take that all in and deal with my emotions. I had to get ready for a new show hmm. in a few days, a national news show. Well, I, I want to hear more about that. Um, what, what do you remember most about working and, you know, really in the next couple of days following the attacks? Trying to make sure that with our program, because it was a lot like Closer Look, mm-hmm. in a sense. It was about how do we have this conversation with the community? In this, in this instance, it's how do we have this conversation with the nation? Uh, like I said, we were in about 35, you know, markets. And how do we have this conversation? It was call-in, too. <laughs> It was live. It was calling after the United States has been attacked. You mm-hmm. can only imagine. And how do we make sure that, and, and this is a great thing about having a wonderful host like Carmen Burns. I don't know if she's listening. And, and, and a lot of my style comes from her. It's about how do we make sure that we are presenting a conversation that doesn't lead to something that just is not engaging for the, the audience. Mm-hmm. And so... With the other producer, I started making calls. I found this wonderful analyst named Phyllis Bennis, who was with the uh, the Foreign Policy Institute. And she said, you want to talk to me? I said, yes. Because everybody, you you know, look, the entire nation is covering this story. So they've got all these experts, you know. And and so I just happened to find her. And I actually just called her up. I didn't, I was supposed to go through the media relations people. Excuse me, y'all I didn't do that. I just I got her number and I called her directly. And having her as that first guest, now that I, I, I recall this, who was a voice of fact and and reason and had a, a tone that was was very easy, I think, for our listeners to listen to. And I remember Carmen asking her the first question being, well, undoubtedly the United States will retaliate. And I remember Phyllis Bennis saying, you're probably right, but I hope not in a way that this will be forever ongoing. And how mm-hmm. haunting is that? Yeah, especially thinking back on it now. Um, in, in addition to what you were feeling at work, uh, was this tough on you personally? Was it tough to keep up with, um, I guess, processing the events of that day on top of 
uh, you know, committing yourself to informing the public. Was that on a personal level difficult for you? Absolutely. And I, I think if any journalist says that sometimes they're not bothered by the news that we cover, I mean, then they must be, you know, still. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like that some things that I cover don't affect me. I'm human. I have emotions, right? Mm. Um, and then also my family being worried, uh, being here in Atlanta, uh, being here in Atlanta after the 96 bombings mm-hmm. and, and some other uh, incidents that took place. And my family worried about me, uh, obviously with the CDC being here, um, the, the many military bases here in Georgia, like so many states. My father's saying, we'll come get you. And I'm like, no, I have a job to do. So you, you, you know, you, you are concerned, but also for me, Daniel, it's the, it's corralling the emotions because I'm watching television like everybody else and I'm seeing devastation and, and death and I'm listening to reports and, and I'm hearing people talk about they can't find their loved ones. Mm. Um, the first responders, those men and women who went into the buildings not knowing what was going to happen. You absorb all that. Mm. Um, and at the same time, you want to make sure as a journalist that you're up upholding those tentacles that Scott Pelley talked about. You know, this is what, you know, Edward R. Murrow, this is what's his, his charge to all of us, right? Mm-hmm. That we still do our job as journalists. So, yeah, absolutely affected me. Did I shed a tear? Absolutely. Mm. Of course. Well, Rose, as we wrap up, um, I did want to ask you because as journalists and as you're talking about it now, you know, we deal with breaking news all the time and, and also with some tragic events. And uh, did you have a moment or maybe there was even a period you can think back to now where you thought that, yes, this is worth committing my life to, to make this part of my life to not only inform the public, but understand that having to process these tragic events and process that for the public as well is is going to be part of who I am. Uh, do you remember a, a moment or a period where you thought, yeah, this this will be it for me? I think after Sunday's show uh, with Carmen and that it was a good show. You know, we had a lot of different voices, kind of like we have here on Closer Look. And that's a two-hour show. <laughs> um, that back then it was a two-hour show, call-in show. And feeling feeling like we we, we allowed people to express themselves. We had guests who were able to um, maneuver through the calls, the callers, but the questions and their comments. And then uh, being able to to feel like we were a part of, of, the, of credible news doing what we're supposed to do. Mm. And it was, there was a, some, a moment of clarity for me because people know my background was in sports. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I knew then that this was, this was part of my calling. Didn't know I would host the show down the road at WABE, <laughs> but you know, um, it's all part of the path, right? So yeah, this is what we do and this is why we do it. And um, whether it's it's a, an attack on, on our soil or whether it's a, a bridge collapsing or you know, what have you, um, our job is to be there when breaking news happens and our job is to present it with facts, you know, and that it's compelling and engaging and not sensationalizing you know, and and also not trying to capitalize on people's pain. You know, I think here at WABE we do a pretty good job of it, and NPR and other news outlets. You know, I think we're all right. Absolutely. Well, Rose, thank you so much for taking this time. I I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Daniel. <laughs> I'm super. Er, I'm contributing producer Daniel Rizel, and this is Closer Look. Mm-hmm.
great job, Daniel. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it will be online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.